Hello and welcome to episode 182, that's 182, of the Waters Waveland podcast. And as usual, I'm Weishan, your host, and today I'm joined again by my wonderful co-host, Anthony Malikian. Hey Tony, how are you two doing? Two weeks in a row. Yeah, two weeks in a row. Doing well. I haven't kicked you out yet. <laughs> I'm sure everybody's wishing that you would, but you know, gotta deal with me for a little while longer, I guess. <laughs> You lie, you lie. They actually love you, don't they? I'm sure that they do. I I am amazing, so. (laughs) So today I want to talk to you about third-party resiliency. And in the past week, we've had two of of our reporters, Josephine Gallagher and Hamad Ali, actually write pieces um, detailing this. So, Tony, why don't you give us an idea about the first one, and I'll go into the second. Uh, my first one, we're talking about Josephine's or yes. the, the Google one. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, the, the article there is just about how um, new laws um, stemming in, in Europe are going to require fin- fintech firms to scrutinize their control frameworks for dealing with system failures, um, as Josephine reports. Uh, this includes mapping out of systems, identifying important business services, and establishing impact tolerance. So, you know, this is this is going to be something. You know, the, the regulators, after spending a decade of really getting in the shit of banks and even asset managers, they're now starting to target technology. They're coming around to the realization of how interconnected uh, all these systems are and how disruptive outages and um, and vulnerabilities are to the industry as a whole and the, the systemic risks that that creates. Um, so we're seeing now, you know, you saw it with Reg Sci over here um, and increasingly the UK is rolling out more and more um, papers on how they're going to go about it. I still think that there's a lot more detail, I guess, that needs to be provided in how they're going to go about it and in the need for this. Um, just like in 2008 with Dodd-Frank, you know, they, you know, the regulators kind of shot for the moon there. And then, you know, the banks and, you know, just the various, you know, industry uh, uh, organizations just, just slowly, slowly just push back, push back, push back delayed things and tried to soften, you know, what the final rules would end up becoming. And they were largely successful, I would say, um, though they there is certainly a lot more regulation today than there was um, in, you know, uh, pre Lehman 2008. Um, so I think that right now we're just kind of seeing the opening salvos on technology providers and not only are they going after the technology companies and specifically they're going to be going after big tech. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to be an important part. But this latest story that Josephine talks about is talking about your third party vendor relationships and your fourth party vendor relationships. So the vendors that your vendor is using. So mm-hmm. being able to understand that chain front to back, it's going to be very challenging. Um, it's going to cost some money, which we can talk about in a little bit, but you know, that, that's, I guess, why it's interesting is that now they're even talking about not only do we care about your relation, your direct relationships, we want you to have a better handle on 
the relationships that the vendors that you're using uh, have. Yeah, because it says here, yeah, a, a third party is contractually responsible for its fourth party vendor and must inform its clients when changes are made to its fourth party network. I think the issue there is you, I mean, firms would really have to have a good grasp on what the vendors that um, you know, they are in agreement with and are providing, you know, solutions to them, um, what their vendors, vendors are doing. And that can be, I guess, confusing and really complex. Yeah. You know, and, and again, I think that one of the interesting things that was brought up um, in that article was, um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Doug, Douglas Wilbert. Uh, so he's a uh, managing director in the risk and compliance uh, practice at uh, Protivity. And this is, is I'm just going to read directly from the story, but implementing the proposed laws won't be cheap. Wilbert says that for institutions to implement these rules effectively, they will have to install front to back mapping of important business services to have a holistic view of data flows, system resiliency and the and the web of interconnected risks. Additionally, institutions may have to consider whether to employ an independent auditor to validate their third party systems and ensure that they can recover in the appropriate time frame. Naturally, I, I don't even know if an independent auditor, what will happen is a cottage industry of independent auditors that, you know, these new companies that will go around and do that for you, you know, um, mm -hmm. auditing as a service kind of a thing. Um, but there is a lot more complexity. And, you know, the other thing that I thought was the important takeaway was, and so Joe writes, is that major cloud providers, so AWS, Azure, uh, Google Cloud, IBM, throw in there as well, um, they're going to push back on how much information they're going to have to disclose because they're already pretty heavily regulated and they have just so many different relationships um, from cloud to just all their different data and analytics services. And, you know, I, I think that also there's just, uh, you know, Jason Harrell says this, so he's at the DTCC, says that companies will be reluctant to part with information that will give industry firms and uh, an intimate view of their operations from a third-party perspective that would require, so his quote, from a third-party perspective that would require them to provide potentially sensitive information about their mm -hmm. operations in order to demonstrate that they have the ability to recover quickly. So this is where the fight's going to be. Um, it, 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 you know, if you want to use something, or something that just kind of pops to my mind is uh, Reg AT, Reg Automated Trading. The regulators wanted um, firms to hand over their actual source code for their trading algorithms. The, the pushback was so great that that got stripped out of Reg AT. Um, and it, I, I'm pretty sure that was finally what happened. Um, and that's what we're going to see here. So you have this discussion. Now is where the fight kind of begins. And I guess that ties then into um, the other article, uh, what was it, Hamad's article, uh, where he spoke with Adrian Poole, head of financial services for UK and Ireland at Google Cloud. Um, he writes that authorities fear that vendor lock-in would hinder portability of services in the event of operational disruption of a major cloud provider. Um, concerns that have shown up in Europe and UK guidelines. Quote uh, from Pool of Google, uh, the regulators are insisting on multi-cloud from a contingency and exit strategy perspective. So regulators both want you to have a better grasp of the various vendor relationships that you have. And they also 
do not want you to have a concentration of risk uh, with a technology with a major big tech technology provider. Um, and so that's going to be the dis- uh, a big discussion at this is going to be the next 10 years, you know, five to 10 years, certainly um, of of fights that we're going to see uh, from a legal standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint. Right. Then this, this actually goes back to a piece that uh, Joanna, Joanna Wright, uh, our UK editor, UK European editor. Yeah. Anyway, our editor in London. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, Joe. Europe. Europe's fine. Okay, Europe. <laughs> um, yeah, so she wrote an article back in tw- um, October last year, uh, just highlighting some of the new guidelines uh, that the European Banking Authority came up with. That was, uh, I guess, generally on outsourcing, but then they specifically went into how um, how they are worried that uh, cloud services are concentrated among just a handful of companies. And the example there obviously was with AWS, uh, Azure, yeah, IBM. So, so then, okay, if if regulators are asking um, firms to have, um, I, I guess, multi cloud, multi vendor, multi cloud vendor strategies, you know what? Let's talk about the cost here a little bit. What kind of implications would that have on uh, on their expenses? Oh shit! I don't know. <laughs> it, it's a it's a good question. It's one that you know I I don't know that they're fully aware of, but that's going to be what they're going to fight back on, right? That this is too much of a burden. It's going to be too costly, and that if they have to go about it, then that cost is going to be handed on to the customer. Um, they will eventually say, you know. If we do this and we have to do this for everything, then all these cloud services that we provide for everyday mom and pop people, well, we're going to have to raise up the price for them just to kind of help our bottom line. That That's just how this always happens, right? And that's how they're going to push back on it, I would say. Right, right. But, I mean, do you agree that it does make sense for them to, I mean, for firms to actually have multi-cloud vendors? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I wrote a feature on that probably about two years ago, I guess now. Um you have to have a multi-cloud strategy, um, unless you're a very, very small firm. But there's just there's too much risk in concentrating, and there are too many advancements being made um, by these different uh, cloud providers that that issue of portability, um, being able to say, I don't want to be locked in here because this service over here, that's the whole point of a cloud is easily making transitions. That if you get too locked in with one provider, then you risk out on, well, certainly there's yeah, the risk of outages. There's also the risk of, um, of price increases. And then there's the risk of, um, of just not being able to tap into new resources. And, you know, and then it can create issues even with your third party. So, you know, if one company is using uh, GCP, another one's using AWS, if you don't have the APIs put in place, uh, the connections put in place to, to seamlessly be able to share that information, it kind of just creates headaches that aren't necessary. So I think that that is certainly, you, you almost really want to be cloud ag- agnostic in the future is what I think every big bank and asset manager will be looking for in exchange. Hmm. And I guess even um, vendors providing uh, software as a solution, and uh, on the cloud as well, they should be, um, yeah, 
as in the solution should be cloud agnostic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I think what you're going for. And, you know, and again, the, 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 the Josephine article, it's not just talking about cloud either. So, you know, that, yeah. so the cloud providers are going to get a lot of scrutiny, but you know, the reason why I think it is an interesting subject is let's go outside of, um, outside of our industry. We saw two major um, tech screw-ups that had, for very different reasons, big effects. So I'm not sure if you're following at all U.S. politics, but you had the Iowa caucuses here for the um, 2020 uh, primaries uh, or uh, for the run-up to the 2020 presidential election. And the Democratic Party decided that they were going to use this app called Iowa Reporter App. it was created by a company called Shadow Inc., which is you – know, there's a lot of questions about that company just in general, but that's not what we care about here. Um, but basically, due to a coding error, the app uh, created by uh, Shadow wasn't reporting the correct data, and it, it just – it became a nightmare that you know, no one know who won. I was a small state. It shouldn't take a long time to get the results in. And it just created a very embarrassing screw up. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I had one, um, a bank CTO uh, sent me the article, uh, sent me this article, and with a message, uh, and he said, the hubris of agile development. You know, two months is good for proof of concept, but for a widely distributed application, it seems crazy. You know, you want to move fast, or, you know, there's a saying, move fast, uh, break things. You want to move fast, but that also means fail fast too. And so that's what he was talking about—that they just kind of really rush this out the door, just to kind of get this thing out for the Iowa Coxes. And then the other interesting one um, that we're we're right now using Microsoft Teams uh, to communicate with each other. Uh, Microsoft Teams went down uh, last week, I think it was, um, for nearly three hours after Microsoft forgot to renew a critical security certificate. This is all to say. The regulators are looking at these big outages and stuff like that and problem, but so often it's just a little screw up that happens. It's just a coding error. It's forgetting to renew a critical security uh, certificate. It's not doing a proper job uh, with patching your your various platforms. And how do you really monitor that? You know, as a as a company, if you're going to sign on a vendor. You're going to try and do your due diligence, but at the end of the day, you know, you know, a, a, a large multinational bank has thousands, thousands of third-party relationships. Yeah. How, how are you going to really monitor all that, especially when it's little errors, little errors that tend to end up blowing up the whole damn thing? And that are also um, literally, literally. Literally, <laughs> out of your control. So, yeah, you, you have to be aware of like the mistakes that your vendors and your vendors' vendors could potentially make. As as you said, like I mean that that example with Microsoft Teams. It was what like what kind of mistake is that? How can you forget to renew like some certificate? And for that reason, like the whole of Microsoft Teams is down for like three hours. I mean, we're using it uh, in, at InfoPro now. I'm sure plenty of others are using it as well. So, I mean, although perhaps, uh, I mean, our, our 
what we do on a day to day basis is not like mission critical or operationally critical, and we can still communicate via other means. But at the same time, you know, for other firms, it it might be. So uh, yeah. I don't know where are we going with this. Well, like I said, I think this is just the opening salvo. So this is. You know, these are going to be the discussions that we're going to be having. Like Joe did a great job of uh, – Joanna Wright did a great job of covering this in a feature. Um, Wei Shen, you should definitely link to all these stories uh, since oh, you do that course. now and I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know I won't forget anyway. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I guess with this we still have to uh, kind of wait and see um, as – Joe Safine <laughs> mentioned in her article. So the consultation um, for these outsourcing requirements, they will close on the 3rd of April. And then, um, so UK regulators are expected to publish the final version of their operational resilience draft. Mind you, it's just a draft in the second half of this year. And they expect to implement some of the proposals uh, in the second half of next year. So we'll, I guess, keep following um, and update you guys on this and how it kind of plays out. Absolutely. Yeah. So now let's kind of segue into something a little bit more um, uh, exciting, I guess. (laughs) And not that cloud isn't exciting or, um, you know, third party resilience. Um, or reliance. Man, your transitions. <laughs> we're gonna have to work on your transitions, definitely. Okay, I think I'm, is, uh, I'm that, good that, sometimes. I do yeah. mess up other times, so maybe this time was not as good. <laughs> but uh, you're not too smooth yourself either. <laughs> I know. Hey, listen, that's why I gave it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm the newbie. Forgive me for doing that, and uh, yeah, you know, I will just be better. So get better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about the Oscars. Um, I mean, I know what I want to start with, but I'm, I'm going to give you the uh, first advantage of uh, giving your thoughts. Um, so if I'm being honest, I didn't see a ton of... I, I very rarely go out to a movie theater. Like, going to a movie theater in New York City is just the absolute worst. It's like... Yeah, I'm a little pressed. Like when when I go in, I don't want people talking. I, I hate when it's jam packed. You know, I mean, I, I liked it when I lived up in the sticks. It was easier just to kind of you wait a week and you know all the hype would die down and you go see a movie with you know 20 other people in the whole theater and it was nice. Um, also, but, I don't think a cinema is where um, you know you would find Tony uh, at. Uh, there are plenty of other places you might bump into him, but cinema is definitely yes. not one. Yes, even the ones that have uh, that have the bar service now, and I'm, I still just don't care for that. Also, I had to go pee then halfway <laughs> through the movie. You know, it's just it's a whole it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Um, but so I, I was happy to see that uh, Parasite won. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought that that was a really good, really inventive movie. Um, I've always been a fan of movies that come out of Hong Kong, uh, Tartan Extreme uh, Productions there. Um, you know, Infernal Affairs, which um, <laughs> Scorsese famously copied and turned into The Departed to win his for, uh, to win his Best Director award, but that was uh, a make of a Hong Kong film first. Um, Old Boy was absolutely insane, the greatest fight scene ever, maybe um, in the hallway. So it was really cool to see them. I I was reluctant to watch because I thought it was a horror film. 
Um, but it was just it was just a inventive suspense film. So I thought that was cool. I'm happy. The Irishman I thought was a fine film, but just long. Um, my hot take on this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, so I watched it just this past weekend, actually. And um, I don't get the plot. I don't like all of Tarantino's movies have, have a plot. I watched that movie and I was like, it was entertaining. The characters were cool. Brad Pitt was just badass. DiCaprio did a great job um, with his character. I mean, just all the characters in it were really, really top notch, as you always expect from a Tarantino film. But I was like, what the hell's the plot of this? Like, what, you know, what, what was the whole reason for watching this? It's just a setup to this fake. Well, spoiler alerts, people. <laughs> <laughs> Have you watched it? No, I haven't, actually, but it's okay. Spoil away. It's just, so the end, you know, without giving too much away, it's, it's, <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing's based, the end of it is the Manson uh, murders and uh, the famous Manson murders. But as usual, twin, uh, Tarantino does a twist like he did with Inglorious Bastards and the, the murders don't end up happening, just a different set of circumstances end up happening. But even that, like, there wasn't a build up to it. It was just like this end scene. I don't know. So. It was a good movie. It was cool. It was a cool movie, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I think the acting was good, and it made the movie and the script seem better. But I, I didn't think that this was one of Tarantino's best. Not, not even by far. And um, you know, I also laughed that the Joker ended up getting the Best Picture award when I remember all the think pieces that came out about. Uh, uh, male aggression, toxicity, stuff like that, and that this is going to be terrible. There's going to be murders. There's going to be shootings based because of this movie and stuff. And in the end, you know, it was just a, it was just a really well-made film. Um, great acting um, in it as well. So that also made me laugh too. How about you? What's your, what's your uh, takeaway? Well, um, I guess like you, I didn't watch many of the movies um, that were nominated. So out of the the best picture nominations, I guess, the only one I watched was Parasite, actually. Um, I've been wanting to watch Jojo Rabbit because I I really appreciate Taika Waititi's um, humour. Uh, also, he's he's from New Zealand, so, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, I, I studied in, in Auckland University, so I just have that a little, a little bit of an affinity with that country there. Um, also wanted to watch The Joker and Little Women um, marriage stories while just haven't had the time to. You know, Tony keeps me busy enough with work and, like, it just piles up. So I, I really don't have any time at all to watch this movie. My fault. <laughs> I actually watched Parasite after um, Mighty of Broadridge recommended it. You know, because uh, back when I met him in uh, Cybos at in Sydney, uh, I, I I was telling him about and and at that time we were talking about Korean dramas and at that time I had just finished that bad one that I that we were talking about last week, which is um, Stronghold Bong Soon. So I was like, oh, this is this is really funny. It has really it has a lot of um, good uh, good storylines and um, good morals in there. Uh, I, I like how the the drama actually kind of seeps these uh, values in. 
So I was, I was talking to him about that. And then uh, I saw him again uh, in, in um, let me think, sorry. Yeah, the FinTech Festival in Singapore last November. And he was like, I didn't actually get to watch Strong Girl Bong Soon, but uh, there's another one I would recommend. And it's a film called Parasite. You should really watch that. So again, I didn't get the chance to until... Um, until actually I was flying over to New York in December and I uh. was scrolling through the movies that were available uh, uh, in flight and I was like, oh, Parasite, okay, great, I'm going to watch this. And just the whole mood of the story was, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I can see how maybe some people might lose interest because it does start off quite a bit slow and... Like only, you know, the layers that it's funny, added though. on. It's funny in the beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and it's kind of funny towards the end, too. It's like just a different sort of humor, I guess. Um, yeah, but I, the ending, though, the ending came really, really quickly. I feel I felt like all of a sudden this this happened. I mean, if you haven't watched it, I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but go and watch it. It's a great film. Um, you would never anticipate, like, the little... Uh, the changes in scene and and what actually happens and and it, I think it portrays, um, I I I guess the difference between the rich and the poor quite, uh, quite well. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean that's certainly the takeaway. You know, I, when I watch a movie, I I try not to dwell too much on that. But certainly, some people they loved it more for that, and some people hated it because of that. But yeah, I was just entertained by it, and it was an easily uh, understandable uh, kind of thread that was kind of running underneath it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it did give me a little bit. Um, I, I guess I felt a bit relieved that I don't, I don't live in a, in a landed uh, property anymore. So like, there's no basements, nothing, and I'm like, no one's living, no one's living down there without my knowledge. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> Uh, it, <laughs> it's always good. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Um, yeah, so definitely recommend Parasite. And yeah. And if, if any of our listeners have a thought on Marriage Story, because I've heard some people that thought it was the dumbest thing. I've heard people that were like, it's really good. Um, for me, I'm like, that one meme just has me laughing all the time of them getting into a fight. But uh, yeah, so if anybody has thoughts on that, I'll gladly take your recommendations. Would you not try to watch it anyway? It's on Netflix. Probably watch it at some point, I guess. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't. I mean, my, I got, I, I ain't got a lot of time either way, Shen. I don't know if you know this. I'm the editor of the damn thing, and you know, I, I, I got, I got some things to do here. You know. I know. Besides cracking the whip, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess the next one I, I really want to watch is Jojo Rabbit. So I, I will, at some point, have to get get to that you know tony when when you give me some free time i'm just chained to the laptop yeah. all the time <laughs> yeah hey listen yeah i mean listen you know write, write the great you know write uh, just a, a great piece and i'll be like all right you know what we'll give you we'll give you a month off to go watch the movies <laughs> <laughs> a month off that would be awesome <laughs> yeah. there you go go win us go win us the fintech award for the pulitzer whatever that version is go win us that award <laughs> with a truly groundbreaking story and then you got it kid <laughs> okay, well, I I will certainly try. <laughs> yeah. Um 
So just to let you in um, on what's going to be happening in the next few weeks, we're looking to have a few guests and you will know sooner uh, when the time comes. Um, yeah, so keep an eye out for that. And I guess uh, thank you for your time, Tony, again. Um, I mean, we I fall back on you every week, but, you know, uh, <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> no, I like, your time. I can do this at night, so yeah. <laughs> yes, and you can have a drink. I am. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, till next week, you'll hear from us again for episode 183. So have a good good week, guys.